Well, good evening, Mick. Welcome to our studio once again. Now, good evening. Last time I saw you, you were just about to go off to Ukraine and snap. You're back to do it again. Well, I, I'm going to be off again uh, shortly, but that's really just to visit family. It's Ukrainian Independence Day uh, next week. Uh, and I always try and spend time with family uh, during those couple of days. It's a very difficult time in Ukraine, and of, of course it's quite difficult to maintain contact with family members, so uh, it'll be a, a quieter visit than the past one. The last one I did, of course, was 2,300-mile drive uh, across Europe, through to Kiev, down to Poltava, down to Pavlograd, which is a big coal mining area, which has a few links with uh, with Wales. So it was a very, very long, tiring journey, but we delivered vehicles and supplies for those frontline defenders. So this is a family trip? It's family. Uh, Independence Day is a holiday. It's obviously in very difficult circumstances because there is a war on uh, at the moment. But there's family members that I haven't seen for uh, a year, so I'd like to spend a little bit of time with them. Of course, it's not easy getting to Ukraine now. You have to uh, get to Poland and then long bus journeys through the border uh, and onwards. Uh, but it's the last bit of the, the holiday time I've got. Of course, I've been working on uh, Welsh Government uh, business for the last uh, week or so very intensely. Of course, I, I'm taking through pieces of legislation in Welsh Government in September, October and onwards and of course a lot of that preparation for those legislations uh, obviously takes place in the months ahead so if anyone asks me again uh, what I'm doing on my holiday I'm telling them I'm working. Okay well the best of luck with your your trip um, you know wishing you well with it as you know you are going into a war zone heaven only knows which way that's going to go. Well, uh, there's a, a lot of fighting taking place, particularly on the Eastern Front. There's a 600-mile front line. Uh, Ukrainian forces, of course, are facing incredible fortifications because the delay in sort of equipment coming into Ukraine obviously gave a lot of advance notice and time for the Russians to build up fortifications, to plant millions and millions of mines. And I think what has happened is Ukrainian uh, forces have decided that they've got to go caught cautiously, that they don't have the numbers of men that you can just throw uh, through minefields without uh, uh, risk to substantial loss of life. That certainly seems to be happening on the Russian side. Ukrainian side is much more cautious, uh, probing, looking for breaks through. Uh, there are areas where Ukrainian forces are uh, advancing, uh, but of course it's not like a sort of a, a film version of the longest day or, or something like that. Uh, this is something that will take time but of course is a, a tragic and terrible loss of life and loss of injuries you know the number of people who've lost limbs because of mines uh, the need for prosthetics the need for medical aid and support uh, continues and will continue for some considerable time until eventually there is peace is there any glimmer of this like i know that other countries are trying to mediate not necessarily ones ukraine would want to talk to that much but there is there have been apparently attempts well, it's difficult to see where there can be peace when you have uh, a leader like Putin, who is effectively a dictator, 
incomplete control, or so it would seem, certainly now, uh, who is almost a sort of Hitler in the bunker mentality. I'm sure there are probably people in the forces, the Russian forces, uh, who would want to see changes. But of course, uh, as as happened with the sort of Hitler syndrome, uh, no one has access to uh, Putin in the same way. And he is totally, um, uh, totally powerful in terms of the things that he wants to do. Um, so it's difficult to see how there can be peace firstly while Putin is there but secondly you know a precursor to any peace has got to be Russian troops leaving Ukraine uh, it's difficult to see how you can have peace talks how you could reward someone for invading another country by having peace talks about handing over parts of territory so I don't think that will happen and I don't think it'd be acceptable to the Ukrainian government uh, or indeed to the Ukrainian people Yes, and Crimea is a major issue there, isn't it? I mean, they want the Russians out of Crimea. Under international law, Russian forces should leave uh, Crimea. Uh, of course, there is a blockade in the Black Sea, uh, which uh, is breaches all the law of the sea and all the aspects of international law with regard to uh, the movement of shipping. So that is becoming an increasing hot point. Uh, that is an area where there is increasing conflict now, particularly now that Ukraine are using these these sea drones to attack uh, Russian uh, naval ships. And of course, uh, uh, that means that the Black Sea is becoming increasingly blockaded from, uh, from two sides. Yes, and the grain export thing has fallen over. Well, Russia has been sending missiles uh, to the grain ports, so it's very clear they've taken the decision to try and prevent Ukraine from exporting grain. Uh, the effect of that is, of course, it causes famine in other parts of the world, and it also causes a massive increase in the price of grain. So the reasoning behind it uh, seems to be uh, one of I think economic suppression of Ukraine, but making uh, hunger a sort of a, a political weapon. I think Russia might be hoping that other countries will put pressure on Ukraine uh, in order to get the grain flowing. But I'm not quite sure that is, that's what's going to happen. So I know Ukraine is now working very closely with Romania for other means of actually exporting uh, the millions of tonnes of uh, Ukrainian grain. And of course, now is harvest season in Ukraine. So things like not only uh, uh, wheat, grain, rye, barley, but also sunflower oil, which is a massive uh, product. When we were driving through to Pavlograd, because we're not that far, really 100 kilometres or so from Bakhmut, where there's been intense fighting. But you see mile after mile after mile after mile of sunflower fields. So you can see the, the importance to the provision of sunflower oil um, to the world uh, food market. Yes, well, I mean, the grain supply is vital to many, well, developing countries, isn't it, particularly, but it's, it affects the price of grain across the entire world. Yeah, if Ukraine has a bad harvest, the price of uh, uh, the price of grain goes up, and that has an impact. Ukraine has had a very, very good harvest this year. The problem is going to be not only reaping the uh, uh, the grain, but also then to export it. Normally, it would come out through places like uh, Odessa uh, on the Black Sea, but of course, that is being regularly targeted now by uh, Russian missiles. So Ukraine had moved further over towards the uh, mouth of the Dnieper River. Uh, but of course that is now being attacked by missiles 
missiles. So it's a deliberate uh, attempt uh, by Russia basically to stop the grain exports. What's the situation with Poland? We see a lot of military exercises and displays of might. Uh, are they getting nervous because Russia has a tendency of just, you know, coming in one night? Well, Poland and the Baltic states are incredibly nervous about Russia. A lot of the Russian media, certainly the sort of nationalistic media uh, for Russia, is talking about uh, restoring the uh, former Warsaw Pact-type boundaries, basically taking back control of the Baltic states uh, and part of uh, what is now Poland. So those sorts of messages are causing a lot of nervousness in Poland. Uh, Poland, of course, has a lot of anger still uh, about the approach that the Russian government has taken with regard to events that took place in the Second World War. You know, the massacre of some 20,000 Polish officers at Katyn and other places, uh, and of course other activities that took place. So there's a lot of uh, historic bad blood there anyway. But I think the events with the Wagner group and uh, the movement of Wagner troops into Belarus, where Lukashenko is the dictator, very much under the thumb, though, of Putin, is creating nervousness in Poland because it is seeing a militarization close to the Polish border. Uh, and so they have counted. So there are not only um, uh, war drills taking place in Poland, but they are, of course, moving troops closer to the Polish border and the same in the Baltic states as well. So there's a lot of concern there as to... Um, what might happen with a more unpredictable leader in Lukashenko in Belarus as well. But strategically, though, logically, perhaps, although logic doesn't seem to come into this, as you say, with, with Putin, but to take on a war on another front uh, when you're actually bogged down in a war that you expected to win in a few minutes uh, would, would appear to be, you know, a military strategic error you know, of the sort of proportions of Hitler and Napoleon, really, um, you know, w would they really try and go into Poland, which is f mightily fortified, and of course would be an attack on NATO, because they're in NATO, so it's a big deal. It's a lot different, isn't it? Well, I think a lot of what's happening is sort of posturing. It's also about if you keep the threat there, it distracts attention to another area and it also distracts resources to another area because the movement of Wagner troops into Belarus also means that Ukraine has to move troops and fortifications close to its northern border as well because, you know, originally one of the uh, attack lines down to Kiev actually came from uh, Belarus. Uh, so, uh, you know, that might be part of the, uh, uh, the strategy, but you're right. It's difficult to work out really what the whole logic is behind this war anyway, because uh, other than basically a land grab uh, and a sort of a former Russian nationalist sort of imperialist recreation, th this war is, is one of the most senseless uh, wars you could imagine. Well, indeed it is. Here, you, you're working, as you say, on legislation for the autumn. So what's in the pipeline? Uh, well, legislation I'm working on, of course, is, is Senate reform. We have to look at the, uh, the number of Senate members that we have in order to be able to carry out really all the responsibilities that the Senate started off as an assembly, but of course now has a parliament and there is a lot of legislation going through. Legislation on environmental issues, on agricultural issues, um, but also legislation relating to our 
constitutional structure itself. One of the things we're looking at also is, is how we can modernise our electoral system. Um, so things like automatic registration, digitisation, making it easier for people to participate in our electoral system. Uh, I, I think we have a real democratic challenge in our society when you have increasing numbers of people not participating who think that uh, uh, it doesn't make any difference whether they vote or don't vote. So I think one of the things we've got to do is obviously to modernise our electoral system to make it easier for people to vote. Uh, Digitisation is obviously a, a step forwards. At some stage in the future, it might even be possible to have online voting. But there's no doubt that one of the key things that we have to do is uh, people have got to, I, I think, believe that it does make a difference, that, po- that politicians or politics is important to them and their lives. So I think it is about the democratic health of a society. So my, my job, as you know, is council general. I'm responsible for the legal issues. I'm also minister for the constitution. So I'll be bringing forward a number of pieces of legislation uh, relating to that. Um, I will also be working, interestingly, and it may not sound very exciting, on consolidation of planning law. Planning is something that impacts on so many lives of people individually, on their businesses, on the councils, on commerce. Um, and it has been, it's almost very difficult to actually understand what the planning law is in many areas. It comes from lots of different bits of legislation from England, from Wales, uh, from all over the place. So our intention is to actually bring it all together to simplify it. But even that will result in a piece of legislation which in English alone will be about 450 pages. But uh, it is something that's been worked on for a couple of years and it will make a massive difference within Wales. It may not sound exciting. Uh, People may sound this sounds very technical and bureaucratic or whatever. But of course, planning affects our lives. It affects our environment. It affects where housing is. It affects how development takes place. It affects how businesses take place. So it is one of the things that we're doing in Wales that put Wales way ahead of the game uh, in the in the UK, because what we would hope to have at some stage is probably the clearest simplest uh, and most logical uh, planning law which will all be in one place we're not talking about changing the law but what we're talking about is bringing it all in one place so it is accessible and people can understand it and use it much more easily Mm. i mean at the moment there are many planners who struggle many lawyers who struggle to understand what the planning law is you have many companies that may be cross-border have interests in wales and in england um um, and uh, uh, don't understand that actually we have different planning regimes within Wales. So it's important that the, there is an understanding of what Welsh planning law is. But equally so, uh, everybody needs to know that you can go to one place, that all the law is there in that one place. It's in a logical structure. It's accessible and it's understandable. That isn't the case at the moment because what has happened is decade after decade after decade, uh, the law has been changed, it's been added to, it's been amended. So in order to find out what the law is on a particular planning issue uh, is an incredibly tortuous uh, process. 
um, and something that keeps uh, uh, lawyers and planners um, uh, in, in work uh, ad infinitum. So we want to make that a lot simpler. And one of the ways we can do it simply is bringing it all together into just one piece of legislation. So you'll have a Welsh planning bill. Uh, it won't be changing the law, but it'll be bringing it all into one place. And you'll be able to read it at the beginning and work your way through it in a logical structure. We did this with historic environment law. This is the law around all our uh, ancient monuments, listed and protected uh, areas. You know, it's not an area I know a great deal about. I had to take the bill through the uh, Welsh Parliament. Um, But I have to say, uh, in terms of being able to understand uh, what it was about, once you were able to read the bill in one place, it really was so much simpler, so much easier, very much welcomed by all those who work in that area. And I think planning is uh, a consolidation of planning law will be something that will make a real difference. It's not going to excite anyone. No one's going to get up in the morning and say, yippee, we've got a consolidated planning bill. But it will make a big difference to all the work that goes on behind the scenes in all the important things that impact our lives, you know, developments, housing, industry, building, environment, and so on. It certainly makes a lot of sense to do that and, and to have it all one place. And what you were saying earlier, too, about the uh, reform of the electoral process mm. as well, because we're in a modern, you know, electronic age. People have got apps. They vote for stuff all the time, actually, yeah. and and kind of just carry on with our fairly archaic polling booth kind of thing it's a no-brainer that that needs fixing and you're obviously reviewing everything there have to be safeguards and there have to be processes to make sure that no one defrauds it of course but it's moving in a very different direction from the uk government on the same subject it seems so in wales we've got 16 year olds having the vote you know in local uh, elections now in the council and and for the assembly as well and you know there are all these moves with the assembly to get more representation and all of this going on Meanwhile, the UK government, of course, have passed a law that requires you to have more identity when you go to vote. And this has caught people out who've been voting, you know, all their lives, who've rocked up to polling stations in England in the most recent local elections, I think, because it affects local elections there as well, doesn't it? And they've not been able to vote because they've not been able to prove in the way that is required who they are. And that is now here So the next general election here will have an entirely different approach, really, from the approach that you're taking gradually into a more accessible kind of idea entirely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, we will have different elections for uh, the next general election for the UK Parliament um, because uh, they will have uh, voter ID requirements. We know that from the last council elections in England, uh, the Electoral Commission say there was about 14,000 people who effectively were prevented from voting. The actual figure is probably a lot higher in terms of those who basically have taken the decision, well, I haven't got the what's necessary or I can't be bothered to do it now with all the additional bureaucracy or whatever, and choose therefore not to vote. Um, if, it, if it was an issue, that there was an issue of fraud and so on, but that really has never been an issue. The laws we have against voter fraud and so on uh, are more than satisfactory. So, of course, you know, the politics around this is probably very different as to why would you want to bring this in. We think it's an idea that has really come from uh, America. Uh, that's called voter suppression. I was going Uh, to ask you about that because there are are close parallels with um, control of voters in a sense through different mechanisms in America. Well, voter suppression is really a way of how do you actually uh, increase the bureaucracy 
or the restrictions on the ability to vote uh, to target particular groups of people who you think are not going to vote for you. And there was a very sort of amusing statement, wasn't there, by Jacob Rees-Mogg afterwards, who said, in actual fact, the uh, people who were being turned away, many of them were going to vote Conservative, so they shot themselves in the foot. But the important thing of what Jacob Rees-Mogg said was, was that very clearly was that the intention behind it was actually a form of voter suppression. It was about actually trying to stop people, for, uh, making it more difficult for people who are unlikely to vote for them to vote. But uh, they, got, they got it wrong, uh, according to uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. But by admitting that they got it wrong as you say, admitted that there was a, a tendency to go that way. Well, absolutely. The approach we've taken now in Welsh Government is really this. We, we've set, look, principles for electoral reform. It's got to be about integrity of the voting system. It's also got to be about accessibility. And we have many people in terms of whether it be age, whether it be other forms of disability uh, or whatever that make it very difficult to vote, where there are lots of technological things that we can do that support them. It's about making making voting more accessible and more inclusive. Uh, and uh, those are the principles that we've sort of underpinned in any changes that we want to make. And, of course, I will be bringing legislation on this. So one of them, though, is, of course, is this. We have this incredibly bureaucratic process of registering people each year where you send letters round, you have to fill in forms and so on. Yet most of the information, if it turns to the NHS, you don't have to register with the NHS or you've done it once and you're there forever. So we have all this technology, we have all this data. So what we're looking at is really automatic registration. That is, you are automatically on the electoral register. Now we have to make sure that that will happen uh, properly uh, uh, and fairly. People won't be, of course, required to vote. But, uh, uh, you know, making sure they're on the register in the first place so they have the opportunity vote. And I think it's then up to individuals and political parties and so on to basically uh, explain why and campaign to make sure that people do uh, exercise that right to vote, you know, to, to explain, to, to show that there is a purpose to voting, that it can have an impact on people's lives. And also that it is certainly the important thing from my perspective i think it is a civic responsibility you know you live in a society uh you have lots of benefits from that society but there's an obligation to participate as well so that's what we're looking at we're looking at modernizing the mechanics in the way in which uh, the elections are organized uh, basically making taking advantage of uh technology modernizing the system to make it easier also you know once you digitize the electoral register you create, I think, for the future, lots of other opportunities. You know, we should be looking uh, for the future at things like online voting. We should be looking at people being able to vote in different places. You know, why couldn't it be the case that, you know, if you've got thousands and thousands and thousands of people each Saturday going into a retail park, why couldn't you have a polling booth there? Well, digitization makes that uh, a lot easier. So, you know, the old idea that somehow it is difficult, should be difficult to vote, and it's only at one particular day between certain hours, etc., well that, well, that can change. People's lives are very different to they were uh, a decade ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I think we've got to reflect that and also reflect the modern generation. People move around a lot more than they did. So, uh, you know, I think if we want our voting system to be modern and to work, uh, we've got to embrace uh, new systems, new technology. Uh, and as long as we preserve the integrity and independence of the system, uh, I think that's good for the democratic health of the country.
all of that makes sense. Uh, you know, the world has, has moved on and making it accessible. You can't make people vote. Well, some countries do, of course. You have to vote. I mean, like in Australia. Yeah, well, we did. I mean, we have had a debate in the Senate. There was an individual members debate, in fact, moved by Adam Price, the former leader of Applied Cymru. And it had a lot of cross-party support. I think there cross-party support across all uh, political parties. And it's partly on this principle, isn't it, that in a society, as well as the benefits, you have the responsibilities to vote. Australia has compulsory voting. A number of other countries do. Uh, we don't. And, of course, where it does take place... People do have, of course, the option of uh, a none of the above vote. So, you know, you, you, you have to vote, but you don't have to vote for any of those that are standing. You can basically say, no, I don't want any of these at all, etc. So you do have the, the a system for basically uh, spoiling your ballot, you know, which is what some people do if they don't want to, they want to vote, but they don't want to vote for anyone. They draw a line or they write an objectionable comment on the, uh, on the ballot paper. Um, but we know we're not there. Whether that's a debate that will take place over the coming years, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But at the moment, it's I think it's just modernising the system that we've got, and we're doing it differently for the Welsh elections. We can't, of course, as Welsh government, interfere with the UK government elections, but we are responsible for our council elections and for our own Welsh Parliament elections. Um, so we will be having a system that, after the general election, is going to be quite a bit different for, for, the, for the next Senate elections in 2026, I would hope. Yes, and, and you may have a change of government in Westminster, which may help, you know, if the ID thing appears to be a bit of an own goal politically and is not thought to be desirable, you might see that repealed. But one thing you don't think you will see repealed is first past the post, which Labour, UK Labour, seem just as happy with as, as the Tories, because, you know, people have outright winners that way. And not, as you've told me before, uh, as in most of Europe, where coalitions are forced on everybody, but they then have to talk to each other and get on, uh, you know, in order to run countries. Um, we, we're not really used to that at that level. I know we are here because there's a lot more consensus, committees and all of the, the things you've told me about before in the uh, way things are run in Wales. But in Westminster, it suits both of the main parties to be first past the post and something that I, I know from my conversations with you and with Vicky Latterly is that when you have more assembly members and the whole thing is different the way the representation works is different you will also have a higher degree I gather of proportional representation in the process of choosing assembly members so that's another difference mm. between uh, voting here i mean you might have electronics and all sorts of things going on here as well but actually the entire way that people have voted we've all been used to you know the one who got the most ticks or x's uh, you know wins uh, and of course that that it hasn't happened actually with regional people here for a yeah. while I, I don't think people realize that you know yeah. it's people like yourself were first past the post but the regional members yes. aren't. But I, I gather that it's going you know, much more. Um, it, it will be a, a fully proportional system um, using a closed list system and to haunt so the way in which the votes are allocated will be uh, proportional. So it will be a very, very different system. Uh, and it will be certainly a system that is more representative, I think. First past the post, you know, didn't really matter too much when uh, you only really had uh, two political parties for most of the 
post-1945 period. But there are more political parties uh, now. Uh, politics is more volatile and more diverse. It cannot be right, in my view, that you can have a government that could be formed with a large majority on the basis of 35% of the votes. So I think first-past-the-post is an outdated system. Uh, you're right, there's a lot of caution within the Labour leadership uh, about this. I think the caution, as much as anything, is about not making that an issue before the general uh, election, because uh, the Labour Party's policy decision for its conference is now in support of proportional representation. So I think we are going in the future to be looking at changes. I think change has to happen because, you know, democracy means people's voices have to count. Uh, and to make them count, I think you have to have a system that's better than first-past-the-post. In fact, I think first-past-the-post is one of the reasons why more and more people are actually not bothering, because they say, well, what difference does my vote make, you know, etc. Um, you know, when uh, clearly these people have got uh, a majority there, they're going to vote. It may not be a majority of the people, etc. So I think it actually disincentives people to voting. A proportional voting system, I think, actually says, well, actually... Uh, it is worth voting because, you know, for example, you know, if we have six Senate members being uh, uh, elected for paired constituencies, which is what we're talking about, um, you know, my vote may mean that one of the people I want gets on there or my vote will certainly count some way or other in terms of who is actually there and some of the things that I would like our elected representatives to do. So I think that change is inevitable but it's like a lot of things is when you get to a general election you know uh, there's a lot of caution from political parties from oppositions uh, not to start creating lots of i suppose political battlefronts you know we talked about earlier on weren't we about you know poland and russia and uh, you know how, whether it's sensible to have more than one front i think that sort of politics is actually a consequence of the fact that we still have first past the post it prevents people from actually wanting to speak out it prevents political parties from being as robust as they might be on policy etc because uh you know with uh with first past the post you get a majority even if it is only 35 percent of the entire vote you can still win and uh i think that first past the post system distorts our politics and that's why we need to modernize we need to to change yes and if we look around a lot of europe has a proportional system of one kind or another uh, and it does cause fractious issues when it comes to forming governments you know because nobody's got uh, a majority so they, they can go off and run the place they have to get on with everybody and sometimes it's really hard to get a coalition together i mean we, we're used to seeing this on our news coverage uh, so it's not a, an easy process but it probably is a process that deep down below you know if people can select their candidates in the way you say that people get, you know, their second, but they've had a lot of votes, so they'll they'll probably get in somewhere. That's a different ball game entirely, mm. doesn't it? So it means that democracy from the grassroots is actually likely to percolate, even though it's maybe a bumpy process. And here it'd be really bumpy because we're just not used to it mm. at all. Yeah. I mean, you're used to it, you know, you know, from what obviously happens at Seneth, where most of you, most of the time, are working committees where they're cross-party, so. You, you have to get on with each other, and generally you do. I remember Vicky, t Vicky told me, because it's my first long conversation like this with Vicky, yes, right? Yes. She said when she went to the Senate first, she expected to, have, in her words, put her boxing gloves on. 
she thought it would be confrontational in a sort of House of Commons kind yeah. of way. And we have had a few dramatic uh, outbursts, you know, on the floor of the Senate, largely between the leader of the Welsh Conservatives uh, and, yes, and the First yeah. Minister. That, that's um, fair play, yeah. But, but, but they're, they're pretty few and far between, in fairness. And uh, she said what was she was stunned by, really, was by how consensual it needed to be to pass the laws to scrutinize the laws and so on and how most of the time you all are working together rather than apart and this isn't something that well the british voters are used to they're used to seeing people knock seven bells out of each other mm. at prime minister's question time and the whole concept of actually being running in the background consensually is just alien so if as you say the labor party if they got in the national labor party and, and became gradually more receptive to proportional representation which of course might mean they don't win next time this is the big iffy isn't it but they will be able to look at least to the devolved nations uh, well at least us in scotland have some kind of proportional and see how it works to perhaps gain some confidence that it isn't really throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But convincing politicians is very different from yeah. convincing the public who have no experience yeah. of anything but first-past-the-post. and They don't understand it. And you've got a major job on here to explain how it works as it gradually becomes more proportional in Wales, haven't you? Oh, listen, absolutely. There's no doubt because we have a very sort of London-centric media where... Uh, you know, it took a long time to explain to people that decisions on the NHS uh, being taken, say, during COVID were for NHS England as opposed to NHS Scotland or NHS Wales, you know. So the understanding of how, how devolution has impacted obviously takes time. That's not a surprise, really. You know, we've had our parliamentary system for several hundred years. I mean, we, ironically, we, we haven't had a full entitlement to voting for a hundred years yet. We've had, you know, it's, our, our democratic system is... Uh, less than a hundred years old uh, but nevertheless you know there is a knowledge that people have grown up with in terms of the way the parliamentary system uh, works um, that of course is changing with younger people and there are two challenges there one is that I think what you call civic education people you know educating young people in terms of their political responsibilities etc but also the fact that they are more clued up on a lot of things that are happening uh, their access to information is different their use of technology is different so we're in a very very changing world in all of that and to be honest our electoral system is really a hangover from the past uh, it is dysfunctional it's out of date it needs to be modernized but as with all things making change is not easy you know culture change is difficult you know as as i'm sure we get on to as you know the moving from 30 miles per hour to 20 miles per hour in built up uh, areas you know a lot of that may well be the issue of uh, uh, culture and what people are used to so change is always difficult and has to be worked hard but of course once it does happen i think people do uh, adapt uh, very very quickly if it's something that they think well yeah actually this makes sense you know well, moving to the elephant in the room, <laughs> I've quite deliberately kept it out of the conversation so far, so we could talk yeah, about other course. things. It's taken an interesting um, turn recently that the petitions um, mm. approach of the Welsh Conservatives has been, some would say, a tad naughty, uh, in the sense that um, their position on the 30-mile limit, limit appears, if you wind back far enough, to have changed a little. I mean, they're, they're saying, like uh, everyone, I think, is agreeing that near schools and, you know, 
narrow roads and all sorts of things, you should have it. Um, but even in relatively recent times, the Welsh government has done a survey, which I think showed that about 60%, you know, less than the original one way back before the pandemic, mm -hmm. where, the, where the legislation was starting to be coined, I think, mm -hmm. there, was a, there was an apparently greater agreement from the public. But the fact is, there still is majority agreement. And at the bottom of it all is the actual fact that if a car hits you at 20, you're more likely to survive. And if a car hits you at 30, you're not likely to survive or have serious injury. If it hits you at 40, you've had it. Oh, listen, absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's a sort of strange debate in some ways because, you know, there's, I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding about it, uh, a lot of confusion. It also ties in with a bit of a culture position we have with regard to cars and the rights of drivers and so on. Any area where there are lampposts, unless there's a sign giving a different speed limit, is the fault system is 30 miles per hour. Uh, and you're absolutely right, if you're hit by a car at 30 miles per hour, uh, you're more likely to be killed uh, or seriously injured than if you're at 20 miles an hour. You know, we know uh, and at 40 miles an hour, you've got absolutely no chance whatsoever. You know, it's uh, uh, very unlikely you would survive. Children uh, are more vulnerable too, aren't oh, and, and they? Listen, because whereas uh, adults might 50-50 survive 30, a child yeah. won't because it'll hit them in their chest oh, or a head because yeah. they're lower, smaller. Yeah, they? and there are different categories. You know, there are you know people with disabilities, the elderly, the increasing elderly population, children in particular. Now, what it means is, is that all around our schools and all those roads that are 30 miles per hour, all of that, if you want to change it to 20 miles per hour, there's quite a complex process. You have to go through a planning process uh, to justify changes, reducing it to 20. I've had over the past you know, decade or so, numerous communities I've been involved in where we've been trying to get the, the change to 20 miles per hour because you know, many of our roads are just not really suitable for the amount of traffic that we have. And it's the parents and it's the concern about the children uh, that the, the reason that they've been asking for that. All the law really does is say, well, instead of it being a default position of 30, we're going to make it a default position of 20 because we know that is so much safer. But what we'll give the councils the power that if they are satisfied within certain guidelines that it is safe to do it at 30, they can restore it to 30. So it really is just shifting that balance. It is really putting safety first. It is the, safe, the safety position is the position we start with. The other thing that surprised me a lot, I mean, I have to say, I've had a, a few people make representations to me. I've actually had more people contacting me basically saying that they want 20 miles per hour within their area. And they are, you know, maybe it's what you call a sort of silent majority and so on. But there is a, a very vocal, a very loud minority of people. But, you know, from, from the evidence that I've seen, you know, if you're, if you're on one of these roads um, and it goes down to 20 miles per hour, the actual difference it makes in your likely journey time it may well be less than a minute. You know, the actual impact it really has uh, on you uh, is, is pretty well insignificant in terms of the, the, the benefits that come from it. Now, there are those who say, you know, if you're taxi drivers or business or whatever, say, oh, yeah, it does make a difference, you know. Well, I think that difference is, is marginal, but I, I would always put the safety issue first, you know, uh, the safety of our communities. Uh, and uh, so I think it really is makes a lot of sense. Uh, it has happened in parts of England already. 
Uh, it has happened in many other parts of uh, of Europe uh, where this is, this is there. So in some ways we're playing uh, catch up. Wales, of course, is the first country to say that we're going to apply this across the uh, across the board. For me, you know, we were talking earlier about culture change. When I when I go through an area now that's got twenty miles per hour. I you know I do think I think God this is slow you know it's you know you see a road ahead of you etc and uh, you think well this God this is this is this is tortuous but why does it feel tortuous well it's because I'm used to doing it at thirty you know and many other people are used to probably doing it faster than thirty you know um, but what we do know in terms of you know from the doctors and from the medical statistics the number of injuries that this will save lives. It will save injuries. You know, and I, I responded recently on one request. I said, well, look, to be honest, if there is one child that, that is saved as a consequence of this change of policy, that's worthwhile. But the reality is there'll be many, many more that do. But I think it is about culture change. It is about difference. It is about basically just getting used to driving a bit slower in what are 30 mile per hour roads. You know, uh, and uh, I, I think once people uh, have adjusted to that and got used to it, you know, it, it'd be like do you, you'll remember this. You know, the the seatbelts clunk, click, and all that stuff. People are saying, "I will never." You know, how dare you force me to have a seatbelt on, etc. It's my choice, and so on. Well, what happens now? You don't even think about it. You people get in a car and they put their seatbelt on. They don't even know they're doing it, but we know that seatbelts save lives. You know, so. Well, we have a historical spot. It's a it's a fun game where we guess the mystery year by the songs, you know, the three year songs, <laughs> yes. and the historical facts from that year. Yeah. And in doing that spot, it, it's astonishing sometimes how recent things like helmets, yes. you know, on motorcyclists, yeah, how uh, how compulsory helmets were actually relatively recent in the history of the world. And uh, yes, you're right, of course. Uh, you know, I think no one's going to argue with the, the 20 mile an hour to save lives thing, especially when there are children around schools, whatever. I don't think anyone really argues against that one. And, and you're right, they will get used to. I mean, people are getting used to the, the current 20 mile an hour limits because mm. they are all over the place. And if you go to England, as you say, you find lots of 20 mile an hour things. Mm. I mean, I think there's been of a political, you know, football coming around yes. recently just to join in. But actually, in England, you'll find loads of 20 mile an hour zones. The difference is we're saying, look, it's 20 unless we tell you otherwise. It's a bit like a, an original conversation we had years ago about organ donations. Yes, actually, yeah, it was exactly the same principle as that. Um, it does seem slightly ludicrous though that they've been going around putting up 20 mile an hour signs and they they have one year to take them down again in a vast number of you know millions of pounds worth of signs mm. that does seem a bit kind of stupid but do you think you know overall the timing of it has been coincidentally unfortunate in the sense that a perception is being generated mm. that you are anti-motorist anti-car because you know the massive moratorium on road building which was like yeah. whoa actually they've they've sort of shelved two-thirds of their road building process mm. oh, you haven't stopped it entirely but it was a massive thing yeah. which followed on from the obvious to most people logic of putting a bypass around newport i mean that's a no-brainer to most people and then you decided not to do it interestingly you're not going to allow a solar farm on the same levels <laughs> either which you probably can't comment on so it's you know there's this there's this campaign to protect the Gwent levels, which oh, appears right. to be you know more wide ranging in recent days. Uh, I haven't been following that one, but uh, yeah. well, it's in the High Court. Yeah, 
um, because there, there was a plan to put solar farms. I mean, it's flat. It can't be used for anything else, pretty much. Mm. It's, it's you know, bogged down with water half the time. It's not an environment. You wouldn't think you'd put an electric project there, really. But somebody decided to apply for planning permission to put solar farms out on the Gwent levels, uh, are two quite large ones, I think. They got local planning consent, as far as I know. And, uh, you know, the, the rural minister has said, no, you're not. Stop. So they've gone, whoa, mm. and gone to the high court because, you know, it's a big yeah, deal. Yeah. But, but it's interesting that back to the roads, though, when that motorway extension, and I know there are financial things. You've yes, explained the finances of it, that you would be allowed to borrow a crippling amount of money <laughs> to build it. But, you know, you wouldn't have any money left to do anything else. And all those other things which are kind of lost in the argument, aren't sure, they, and all the sure. passion. But there is an impression uh, with some and quite a lot of motorists, I think, that everything you guys do is to somehow impede the progress of the person driving the vehicle innocently into work or the lorry or whatever. And, and that's a kind of impression that's rather bigger. So the 20 mile an hour thing, it just kind of aggravates that because it's a general perception, yeah. I think, that, that there is that issue. It, it, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there is that perception. It's a perception that is fostered and nurtured by <laughs> those, like... <laughs> those who think there might be political advantage in yes. doing so. But what I say is, I mean, for example, I know on the Senate, every single member of the Senate is uh, has a car and as a driver. Uh, as far as I'm aware, I hope there aren't any that I'm, I'm besmirching that way. There's an image that some of them only ride a bike a short distance in Cardiff and have no idea what it's like to drive a car. Uh, uh, absolutely. And of course, that, of course that, actually, I mean, that actually isn't true. I mean, listen, I live in Tonnerville. Uh, the bus connectivity from Tonnerville to Pontypridd and to Cardiff. Uh, coming back after a couple of beers on a journey that takes an hour and 20 minutes, you know, is uh, in challenging at the age of 69. You know, it's uh, that's where, where it is. Uh, but uh, the reality is our society is changing, our environment is changing, uh, our industry is changing, and, you know, the dependency that we've had on the car or the nature of that is, clear, is, is, is going to change. You know, we, we will be moving towards electric vehicles. There's absolutely no doubt about that. There will be people who don't like that or don't like the timing of it. We need to ensure that uh, vehicles that have high emissions, etc., uh, are not polluting our areas and killing, basically giving asthma or respiratory disease to children. So you've seen all the controversy of the uh, ultra-low emission zones issue in London, and of course, it's something that we would want to look at within Wales as well. You know, because it is about you know people who say I'm, I'm totally against it because of the car and so on. Well, that's putting one side of the story. The other side of the story is of course we've got a lot of young kids around who are breathing in these fumes uh, who are, who, who, and whose lives are being affected by that uh, and that's another balance to it and again I would go for the, for the safety side so it's not against vehicles but it's putting it within a balanced perspective that, that actually protects the environment and protects people's health uh, and that also then leads you really towards we've got to do something about improving public transport uh, increasing public transport providing an ability for people not to have to uh, get in the car in order to go anywhere people are getting more used to active tra travel you know people are getting used to taking more exercise you know I, listen I'm as guilty as anyone on this I mean you know I've driven 200 yards down to the shop to buy something and you afterwards you feel guilty about it think why on earth did, did i do that well you know we live in high pressure times times the weather every all that sort of thing 
we, we do have to sort of change the way we live within a world where there is climate change taking place, where environmental issues are much more important, and particularly to the younger generation. And that means we've got to start doing things differently. And the old ways of the past, uh, you know, are, are no longer really acceptable. But they, they do cause difficulty. And it does involve change. And it does involve culture change. And change is always the most difficult for, uh, for people and for politicians and for society. Mm. You know, but... Uh, and. Um, you know, I think it's politicians have to be brave and they have to do things. And I've said on uh, numerous occasions, I get you know the few messages I've had, well, I will probably never ever vote Labour again if uh, you go ahead with this. And I have to say, well, to be honest, it was in our manifesto, it was what we promised to do. Uh, but at the end of the day, I've got to do what I think is right for the future. And, um, you know, people have to make their choices in that way. Yes, I mean, I, and, and no one's going to disagree. I mean, I, 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 with the principle of the pollution and kids with you know full of, of terrible things from young ages kids are dying from this i mean they've been it's documented now yeah. hasn't it uh, yeah. you know with there have been uh, inquests that have actually established the cause of death as being pollution and so on which is quite recent really mm. so no one's going to argue against that and in fact i saw an article in the eye paper is one of very few yeah. papers so it's the only one i could find actually that doesn't really take a political stance on anything and they dug down deep underneath the um the mayor of london's uh, assertion that he wanted to extend his mm. free air zone and they published the report that had come out and where there is a uh, already control and there was a vast decrease in the amount of pollution in the air. Yeah. I mean, a stunning amount. Yes. And, and um, you've got to go, okay, well, I don't like the big, the big brother techniques and the cameras around every corner thing, but actually the principle mm -hmm. of stopping the most polluting vehicles or, or giving an incentive to encourage them not to, or to change them to less polluting yeah. vehicles, all of that is sensible. But I, I personally, and this is a personal view, mm -hmm. I don't think you'll get people out of their cars. I think they'll happily convert to hydrogen yeah. if they can afford it electricity anything that does the obvious you know desired effect of stopping pollution mm. i think nobody's gonna but, but i do believe it's a, it's a thing that people feel is a personal freedom uh, if you want to if you you know you're a, you're a mum or your dad with several kids at home and you want to do a big shop you can't carry several yeah, um, carrier bags on, on a train no, no matter how brilliant mm. it is or a bus you, you go to, probably to a retail park, you know, which is a death knell of some yeah. town centres, and you just want to put it in the boot and go home. So you will need a vehicle. All the other things you say, I think people will salute in the sense that yeah. safer walking paths, you know, the, the active travel thing is a good initiative. I don't think anyone would knock that. The whole idea of getting people out of their cars where they don't have to use their cars, like the 100-yard mm. trip down to the shop, you know, all of that. At the bottom of this thing is this um, freedom of movement and, and freedom. The word is freedom. And I think there's a big difference, too. Personally, observing what's happening in England, there are things like the pollution zone, anti-pollution yeah, zone, sure, and, sure. and the politics of that are recognised. You know, mm. they may have been a factor in a recent by-election. Who knows? Yeah. But... The, the the argument, a bit like the 20 mile an hour speed limit, is unarguable under the surface, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is this question of freedom. And we, we talk about freedom in the abstract, but freedom always comes with 
collective responsibilities, doesn't it? Yes, well, um, what I was going to say was, yeah. with, with the cars and the pollution, no, no doubt, but some local authorities in England, I think Oxford might be one of them, are experimenting with a totally controlling bollards down the bottom of your street thing to stop people communicating across the city really they're trying to encourage all amenities to be put within you know a few hundred yards or a mile or two so you don't have to drive anywhere and this is seen to you know and it's enforced with cameras and fines and all sorts and it's to stop you moving around really and that's another ball game entirely i think that's something totally i think that's totally different yeah i don't think anyone certainly in wales is talking about saying well you can't have a car you can't drive etc but we have to create a framework within which that happens um and that is a framework which one encourages people to use public transport we have to make public transport better we are beginning to do that in terms of the investment in new trains i hope to be uh driving a train uh, a bit later on this week uh, well well they say driving i won't be driving it there but i i might be giving the impression i'm driving it sat in uh, the cab but i do want to see some of these brand new trains that have been uh, commissioned that we're all looking forward to seeing on the uh, uh, on on the lines and, and interesting i'm sorry there's a bit of a diversion um talk about interestingness i posted on facebook um just saying well i've just been down there i've had a look here's a couple of photographs really fascinating what's going on in in, in taft's well uh, and it's had 245,000 views you know so there's a lot of interest in in public transport and a lot of interest in i think some of these things i think it's about getting the balance right but it's also about creating a framework but it is a framework that i'm afraid challenges old ways of doing things um uh, perceptions of things uh and it's is about partly about culture change as well uh and that's the art you know really the the challenge we have really in welsh government and within politics is making those changes and making them as uh, seamless as possible in a way that hopefully within 12 months time people are saying what on earth was all that fuss about doesn't this make sense Yes, and there are people who believe that the, it, 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 the Transport for Wales thing is a smokescreen, that for some yeah. reason it's not really going to happen, and it's all a load of you know, baloney. And, and clearly, within about 12 months, it'll be pretty obvious that uh, it's not. So, uh, you know, there's that. But there's an interesting... Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering how much uh, negative reaction you had from North Wales to your posts, because we posted, mm. you know, because we've got social media as well as broadcast, and obviously on, on broadcast we can only transmit transmit the, the top of the story the headline if you like but we usually publish press releases like yeah. the transport for wales press release and any pictures on our website and our social media and we had an avalanche of complaints on on facebook from north wales saying well why can't why all this money being spent in the valleys we should you know this is another case of south wales rules okay and nobody cares yeah. about us and it was we were surprised I, I don't know why because of course social media doesn't have a limit where our transmissions have of a course. limit then anything we put on social media goes everywhere oh I, I i had a few of those comments i mean in actual fact i mean it's, it's not true the actual division of uh, the way funding takes place 
is actually pretty proportionate in terms of population and so on. Uh, and there is a bit of politics in the, uh, you know, uh, we don't get it, they all get it, etc. I have to say, this is not this is not something that is new. I get it even within the Ronda Kanataf area in Pontypridd constituency. You know, uh, my, my friends of mine in Bather who say, why does everything go to Pontypridd or Tonnerville? Why does everything go to Bather? Why is everything going on to Taft's Well? What about Tonnerville? You know, so there is there is this thing in terms of uh, uh, what about me and what about my area and so on. And that is a difficult one to manage because, you know, hopefully you're doing things fairly all around and, you know, you have to work on some things in one area one year and it'll be uh, other stuff will come on in other areas. You know, it, it's... Um, it's just one of those things you have to manage perceptions you have to try and explain to people how certain things may benefit them for example you know if i get this new train line opened up to lantrisson well you say wouldn't directly benefit people in tonnerville where i live well it would because you'd only have to go to lantrisson you now then are part of the part of the network you know it's a question of um uh, you might even be able to cycle there. Might so even be able to cycle there <laughs> on one of the new active travel paths. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So there are a lot of opportunities there, but it, you know, there is there is this. I. I really don't like the sort of politics that plays one area off against the other. Mm. We had a bit of that. What about our valley? You know, wh why is everything going into the valleys, or why is everything not going into the valleys? Um, uh, what you know is all them and not us. Mm. Uh, but I do like the politics of saying we want to do to ensure that everyone has a good public transport system, uh, and that we will work to achieve that, etc. And you've got to be able to throw through plans that you are not ignoring areas and so on. That you do have plans for that. And I think that's what we have been doing with West Wales and with North Wales in terms of talking about a North Wales metro as well, you know. Uh, but of course, you know, there are issues in terms of capacity, in terms of resource and so on, how long these things take. But as long as you have the vision, and I think it's the vision that's important. And on that note, uh, we'll, we'll draw a line under it this this month. Uh, fascinating, as always. Um, by the time we next have a conversation, I think probably we'll be driving at 20 miles an hour. <laughs> thoroughly enjoying the process well I, I will set off a little bit earlier we'll than to finding, come to my end yes uh, sev only a few seconds about only me. a few seconds really yes <laughs> safe trip to ukraine let's uh, see you in, in a month's time thank you very much